While we stand, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we have just sung that you would, by your Spirit, work powerfully amongst us this morning. As you speak, we pray that your Spirit would take your word to our heart and as you have promised in your word, pierce our heart. We do pray, Father, that as you speak, by your Spirit, through your word, that you would present before our eyes your glorious Son, Uh, that we would grow to love him and trust him more. And in seeing him, we pray that he would teach us. Amen. Well, please uh, take a seat. And uh, please turn uh, back in your Bibles uh, to uh, the reading that uh, Charles read for us from Titus, Titus chapter 2. That's page 1198. uh, Titus chapter 2, and we'll be focusing on verses 11 to 14 uh, this morning together. Just as you're finding Titus chapter 2, uh, let me share, you with, uh, share a story with you that, uh, was, that I came across a few years ago. It's, uh, it was some years ago now on uh, one of the countless music festivals that fill a typical British summer. This, one, uh, this particular festival was at uh, Wembley Stadium in London. Uh, the day had been filled, as uh, many of these festivals are, uh, by uh, endless uh, rock bands, uh, the likes of Guns N' Roses and others blasting out their tunes through uh, banks of speakers, uh, blasting the tunes out to an increasingly unruly, sun-soaked and uh, beer-soaked crowd. Uh, The day went on and on as uh, band after band uh, came on and for some reason the organisers of this particular uh, festival had decided it would be a good idea to uh, have the finale, the the end of this concert, be the the opera singer Jesse Norman that would come out and sing an aria. And so finally the time came for her to sing. A single circle of light followed Jessie Norman out as she strolled onto the stage as the crowd yelled for more Guns N' Roses. No backup band, no musical instruments, just Jessie Norman. The crowd stirred and were restless. Very few of them even recognised who it was who was on the stage and they yelled again for Guns N' Roses to return for another encore. The scene was getting ugly. But alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman began to sing very slowly the old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found, was blind but now I see. A remarkable thing began to happen in Wembley Stadium that night. Some 70,000 raucous rock fans fell silent before her aria of grace. By the time Norman reached the second verse, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Uh, the singer had the crowd in her hands. And by the time she reached the third verse, his grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Several thousand of the fans were singing along with her, digging far back in their nearly lost memories to the words that they'd heard long ago. Our world thirsts for grace. And when grace descends as it did that night in that song, the world falls silent before it. Now, this little letter of Titus that we've been in in recent weeks uh, is all about the incredible power of grace. And not just power to cause us to fall silent before its beauty as the crowd did that night. No, grace uh, has a deeper, uh, more constant, more radical power than that. And this is the power that this little letter wants us to see. Grace doesn't 
far more for us than just uh, cause us to be silent. Grace speaks. The power of grace is that it teaches us a whole new way to be human. And so on this uh, Remembrance Sunday, as we recall, uh, how much can happen, how much damage occurs uh, when uh, humans are inhuman, uh, how we need grace to teach us uh, this new way of being human. Grace, uh, as I said earlier in this series a few weeks ago, is indeed the most powerful agent of change this world has ever known, this world will ever know. It's an agent of change that again, as we remember on this Remembrance Sunday, has seen a remarkable acts of forgiveness, acts that have been shaped by this grace. And so it's not a surprise that as we continue in this letter that Paul has been calling Titus, who is a minister in this little city of Crete, and the elders that he was to appoint there to teach grace. He knows its power. Hold firmly to it, he says back in chapter 1, verse 9. Now teach this, stress these things, encourage people with grace. And already, uh, just a a few weeks ago, when we were last in this series, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we saw the content of that teaching, what it looks like to teach grace. And what's wonderful about uh, those verses, verses 1 to 10 of our chapter, is that if you scan your eyes down them now, is that you see the content of the teaching of grace is not abstract at all, is it? It's not theoretical, it's not uh, distant from real life, it uh, is in the nitty-gritty of life that it teaches us. I reckon often when we uh, think of uh, the sort of thing we see in the very first verse of this chapter, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Doctrine, uh, we think of uh, dry, stale teaching. Uh, The thought that we would get yet more teaching uh, does indeed cause us, as, uh, as Ben said earlier, to roll our eyes. No more teaching, let's talk about life, real life. Uh, But Paul knows that to teach grace is to teach indeed real life, new life, the good life. You see, the things uh, spoken of, the real life things spoken of in chapters 2 verses 1 to 10 flow from grace. But here's the question. The question that I I think has been uh, begging to be asked all the way through this series, uh, a question that I have indeed been asked as we've been going along, how does teaching grace actually lead to the things that we see here in these verses? How does teaching grace uh, lead to, as we saw in the very first verse of Titus, lead to godliness? How can mere teaching do that? How can teaching cause me to be self-controlled or love others or to endure or to live reverently? How can teaching grace do that? It's the big question we must confront uh, because we began this series with the bold claim that merely teaching grace will lead to godliness. How does grace actually do that? I mean, I know as a Christian I'm saved by grace alone. It is by grace I am forgiven. But how does grace actually change me here and now? I mean, look at the list more closely in verses uh, 1 to 10 of our chapter. How actually will grace change us to be like these things? Now, consider the young woman who is to be taught in these uh, verses. A young woman exhausted at the end of the day, sitting uh, with her children in the, sort of the, the chaos, the storm that is the tea table. Chaos all around her and she loses it. And this is not a day when God's grace hasn't been taught to her. She, perhaps if she's a, a mum who works at home, perhaps she's been to Bible study that morning and been encouraged by it. Or for the mum who is racing home to get tea on the table from work, perhaps she's had the trip home accompanied by a sermon 
on the car CD player. She knows grace. She's heard it even today, but uh, there in the chaos of kids uh, not eating their dinner and shouting and fights and noise, she loses it and shouts back and ends up in a verbal fight with a five-year-old. How does grace change her? Well, the older woman who is to be taught in these verses, meeting with friends who, who start to gossip about a person they all know. And even though uh, she hates it, uh, that uh, more and more these days when they meet together, their conversations are about what's wrong with someone else. Even though she hates when their conversations veer that way and vows not to be part of it, she jumps in again. Or the older man, who even though it has been years since he lost his wife, still aches with the loneliness of it and feels weaker and weaker as a Christian. Feels like giving up. It only made sense with her. Or the younger man who is to be taught in these verses, uh, working late, tired, frazzled, uh, perhaps from the pressure of work demands or even home demands as well, and rubs his eyes in the glow of the computer screen. It's been months since he stumbled, but tonight he's uh, too tired. He's not really thinking, he's not planning it, he just goes to the familiar sites he knows, escapes into the world of pornography again, even though he knows the shame and the regret of it will follow him home. Now what can come into that moment, these moments, and make a difference? Now what can come beside us at that moment, our peer before us, that actually changes things? Grace can. That's what these precious verses at the end of Titus chapter 2 show us. Grace can. Now these verses, are verses 11 to 14, for me are the holy ground for the Christian. This is sacred ground. This is the place to come back to again and again. Here's the heart of things. Only grace brings change, real change, lasting change. Why? Well, come and see. For as Paul declares to us in chapter 2, verse 11, come and see because grace has appeared to us. The grace of God has shown up. All too often we get used to grace as Christians, don't we? Grace might have stilled the crowd at Wembley that night, but we're used to it. We're old hands. It's old news to us. And I suspect that's so because for many of us, myself included, grace can so easily become just a concept, a slogan. Now we know the slogan, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, Grace is undeserved favour. I can recite the slogan. Grace in the end becomes a poster on the wall of my life, perhaps over the years getting increasingly dusty. So there at the dinner table or at the computer or in the loneliness of loss, grace becomes a weightless concept to me. But Paul will have none of that. For grace is not a concept. It is a person. In time and space and history, grace appeared. He declares a very similar thing in chapter 3, verse 4, where he speaks of other things that we often regard as just concepts, the kindness and love of God. They're not concepts either. Do you see it there? When the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. It's the wonder of Christmas that is hurtling yet again towards us. Christmas tells us that grace appeared. He has come. The one whom our other reading, Luke chapter 1 verse 78, says his appearance was the very tender mercy of God come to us like the rising of the sun. Grace appeared. 
the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kindness and love of God, stepped into history and stooped to our level. Grace appeared because God appeared. And no wonder that first Christmas the skies were filled with joyful shouts of angels. When he was born, grace appeared. And there for me is the power. We teach grace not as a theory but as a person. It is as the Apostle John says in his letter 1 John, we've seen him, heard him, touched him, embraced him and then they beat him and tortured him and they nailed him up to a cross. God himself, grace itself, came and lived among us and died among us. I reckon too much of our Christian belief lives in the theoretical. But grace is not a concept to Paul. Grace showed up on the Damascus road for him and knocked him on his backside and turned his life around. Grace gave his life for Paul, the chief of sinners. Grace rose to save Paul. And all the scriptures announce this to us. Not the concept of grace, but the person of Jesus Christ. And when we read the promises of grace all the way through the Old Testament, absolutely every single one of them are yes in him. As we read those promises, we are reading of the anticipation, the expectation of this moment, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus when grace appeared to us. Grace brings salvation to all, we're told here in verse 11, to all, the young man, the old man, the young woman, the older woman, the worker, you name it, grace appeared and brings salvation to any. Now that's what we've been about in these recent days with the One Big Question initiative. We, we don't want people to accept a theory, we don't want them to assent to a concept. The world doesn't need any more theories. We want them to meet Jesus to come to him for salvation who brings them radical change, death to life, uh, sinners to forgiven. Do you remember when that change came on you? Uh, When you first understood grace? Uh, That was when you met Jesus. I can remember it very clearly for myself, uh, an evening service at Christchurch St Ives in Sydney, uh, three quarters of the way back on the right hand side when finally I saw him for who he was. It wasn't a concept that won and changed my heart that night. It was the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I didn't come to an idea in repentance and faith uh, when the shutters were finally pulled up and I saw him. He changed me. And how we long for more to see him and believe because we know the change that that moment brings. What a moment it is. I remember one Good Friday in the church I was at previously in Sydney sitting with a, a, man, a, a man who over many years had been crippled by a gambling addiction who just that morning for the very first time grace had appeared before his eyes. He'd seen Jesus for who he was and he'd come to him for forgiveness, for a new start. How precious that grace was to him, how powerful the change it brought to his life. It is as the hymn says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And my simple ambition this morning is to convince you that grace is just as precious to you now as it ever was for it remains the only thing that can change us. At tea time, uh, over the long lunch with friends, in the loneliness of loss or at the computer or wherever we are, 
But not the concept are we assent to, but the appearing before our eyes at that moment of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Only he can change us. And how we need that change. Only Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, our great high priest who offers us timely grace. Only our brother who comes beside us at those moments can bring salvation. In the deepest sense, salvation. Not just forgiveness of the old, but bring to us new life. Godly life. And so let me say, I think we need to raise our ambitions for what is happening when we hear his word together as we do this morning. As his word speaks of his grace, it speaks of him. And the Spirit's great task, the Spirit's big task, is to take us again and again to Jesus. For there, as God speaks by his Spirit, we are meeting with this grace appeared who teaches us again. You cannot meet with Jesus and leave unchanged. Not the first time, not any time. And so this morning my encouragement to you is this, let grace be your teacher so that he can, as we see in verse 12, teach you to say no to ungodliness, to deny those things, to reject the pattern of life that is ungodliness, a pattern of life that is all about rebellion to God and his good purposes for us, the pattern of life that would see my heart uh, resistant to change or perhaps unconvinced that I even need to change. You ever felt that way before your God, resistant to his change, his call for change? I think there was a period of ten years where I was resistant to his call for me to forgive another person, a friend of mine. Ten years it took. Ten years. Only grace can change me. Ungodliness comes in the end from a heart that refuses to submit to Jesus So let me ask you, are there parts of your life where you are resistant to hand over control to him? Uh, Maybe finances or family life or work life. What do you think is going to change your heart? What do you think is going to change those things that you are resistant to change or refusing to change? Only grace can do that. Only the appearing of his grace can teach us the folly of our rebellious position before him. Only the sight before my eyes of the one who loved me and gave himself for me can convince my heart to trust him enough to change that when he calls me to change, he is committed to my good. God's purpose in speaking his word of grace, the word about his son, is to break my stubborn, prideful neck for my own good. And again in verse 12, let grace be your teacher so that he can teach you to say no to worldly passions. Only grace can teach your heart a new desire, a new love, better than any found in this world. Ultimately, worldly passions, as they're described here, are loves, are desires, are longings that really are all bent out of shape. They are passions of a person that the reformer Martin Luther described as a man curved in on himself. That's what worldly passions are. Bent over, deformed desires where love is ultimately self-focused and self-honouring. That's our world. That's us. And consider what happens when two people or even two nations, as we remember this morning, two people curved in on themselves try to relate. All that we remember today is uh, what happens when two people like that come together. But it's in the nitty gritty of our life too, not just in the great wars that we remember today, but the tea time that I spoke of earlier. Consider the mum or dad for that matter 
ultimately in the end committed to self, desiring in that moment of the chaos of the dinner time some prize for themselves, whatever it might be, quiet at last, or compliance, or maybe some sort of gratitude. In the end they won't gracefully commit themselves to the good of the other at that moment, curved in on themselves. Or the person struggling with gossip whose prize, well, perhaps it's building themselves up at the expense of others. Or maybe it's the unity that comes when a hearer and speaker agree against another. Words that are curved in heart can always justify. Or the man struggling with self-control whose prize in pornography is what? Maybe escape or pleasure or worshipping the God of freedom. But the man curved inward who worships at such altars worships a cruel and hollow God. You see, in the end, ultimately, these are heart problems. The vow to be kinder to our children or not use words to harm others or never stumble again won't change us. We're not that valiant. What's needed is a new desire, a new object of worship. Only the appearing of his grace can teach us the shallow emptiness of our worldly desires. What I need in that moment is the Spirit of God to show me Jesus again to place before my eyes uh, so that uh, he will straighten out my curved-in spine and lift my head up to see Jesus for who he is, to see him in that moment as he passes me by in his word as so magnificent, so gloriously good, so kind, so loving, so satisfying that he puts all the power I may crave, all the control or all the tea time quiet or all the exhaustion of being frustrated at work or all the applause I may crave or gratitude or toys or sexual pleasure, all of it in his shadow, his glorious shadow of his appearing before me in his word, the glorious appearing of the one who loves me and gave himself for me. Only grace has the power to loosen my grip on whatever I prize and cling to him instead. It's why we teach the word of grace so often here on Sundays in small groups at church, family prayer, you name it. We do it to feed on him, to be taught by him, to be changed by him. And so let grace be your teacher so that he can teach you to deny, to reject the pattern of life that is marked by rebellion and curved in love. But also see this, verse 12, grace doesn't just teach us to say no But yes, yes to a whole new pattern of life. The word of grace appeared, the word of Jesus Christ teaches us a life that is in accord with him. And so verse 12, let grace be your teacher so that you can live a self-controlled life. You see there in verse 12, the purpose of grace appearing is to teach you to be self-controlled. It's, a, it's a, a phrase repeated all the way through chapter 12. It's important. It's what grace is aiming to do again and again, teach us to be self-controlled. But I've got to be honest, as I was looking at that this week, I'm thinking uh, it's all a bit of a fizzer, isn't it? A bit disappointing. Of all the things grace could teach me, of all the new things I could have in my life, uh, that grace might give me the power to have self-control, the power to be quiet or calm or restrained. Uh, I'm looking for something a bit more than that. Self-control sounds all a bit, well, boring. But God's aim is indeed to bring quiet to your life, control to your life. That's exactly what grace appeared does for you. It teaches you to be quiet of heart. 
Grace relieves the fears that forever see us out of control, that see us in rebellion and in worldly desires. To be self-controlled is to be finally in mastery over such fears, not because I am stronger than them, but he is the one who has appeared. To be self-controlled is to be mastered by my new self, my identity in Jesus Christ, the self that is no longer in rebellion against him or seeking satisfaction in other desires, no, us new self that is convinced of this. He loves me and he gave himself for me. That knowledge controls me. That's what self-control, grace-shaped self-control looks like. I learn, as the uh, Pentecost collect says, to have right judgment in all things. In the words of uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, I am hemmed in by the love of God, controlled by it. To be one who is self-controlled by this grace appeared is to be controlled by the one who loves me and gave himself for me. And such control leads to a whole new way of being human. But not only does he teach me self-control, you see there, as verse 12 goes on, he teaches me to be less and less a man curved inward, but to be upright. He takes my bent over shape and he straightens me out. No longer shrunken in my relationship to others, but so controlled by grace that I am taught to love others as I have been loved. My relationships become upright and righteous. That is to say, I am taught by grace, not the concept that is, but the person to be a man curved outward. And not just in my relationship to others, but ultimately my relationship to God. Grace teaches me to be godly, to be willing to submit to him. For his love has broken my prideful neck and my selfish heart. And the more his grace appears before my eyes in his word, the more my heart warms to him and his ways, and I find myself less and less resistant to his change, but longing for it. You see, the grace that appeared in space and time in history, the favour that came to rest on this world that very first Christmas when the skies were indeed filled with angel choirs, the grace that then went outside the city gates of Jerusalem and walked up that lonely hill and was nailed and hung up on a cross, the, the day when the skies weren't filled with choirs but darkness, The grace that with his dying breath declared in victory, it is accomplished. The grace that appeared is my teacher. He tells me all I need to know for life and godliness in this present age. Life in this present age is about having the spirit of God through the word of God take my vision again and again to that appearing of his grace. But as we come towards a close, see this and this is wonderful. Not only am I taught by that appearing on that day, on that hill, that cross, but the appearing that is to come. You see it there in verse 13. Our eyes are also taught by the Spirit of God through the Word of God to look for another appearing. We are to wait for it. Wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. We are blessed people. We live our lives in a remarkable context between the appearings of grace, between the appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ on that cross and the appearing on that final day. That's the engine room of dynamic change for life as a Christian. The vision of my Saviour who loves me and gave himself for me and the vision of him coming back for us, his people. Gospel change is driven by the power of remembering and waiting Have you considered how powerful an effect waiting has on your life?
Think of the things that we wait for. Have you noticed how much they shape the way we live? And the things that we're longing for? Awaiting perhaps on this Remembrance Sunday for an end of war. Awaiting perhaps on a more personal level for some change in family life, how that shapes our thinking and our behaviour. Waiting on a relationship, waiting on a job, waiting on a result, perhaps a health check, whatever it might be. Uh, For us as a family in these recent days, it's waiting on a visa to stay in this country. I'm waiting on an eight-digit figure that lets me stay in this country. I have to put it on a form and all will be fine. Ridiculous. Waiting for eight numbers on a page. Let me tell you how huge an effect that waiting has. All sorts of anxiety and distraction that we have felt, exhaustion, even tears, all for waiting for a number. And how often we live in the present uh, shaped by what we are waiting for. It's what we think of, what we speak of. You speak to me at the moment for any longer than five minutes and I'm going to tell you about this number, whether you like it or not. And so our God knows how much waiting shapes us and he says, I'm going to make you wait because I want to teach you. But I'm going to make you wait for something worth waiting for. And here it is. You see it there, verse 13 and 14, waiting for this reunion. Imagine this moment, waiting for the day the one who gave himself for you appears. Waiting for the one who loves me more than I have ever been loved or ever will, who loves me with a loyal love that never stops, a love that goes before me and takes on all the damage that I have caused by my rebellion and my incurved desires, the damage that I'm still doing and will do today. Waiting for the one who has the full weight of those consequences of such a life come at me in their full force, the rightful judgement of my God. He appears, born as a man, walks that hill for me. Can you imagine the day when I see that one face to face? The one who loves me and gave himself for me. That's worth waiting for. And this present age is about waiting for the man, Jesus Christ, to appear. The man I long to be. The man curved out. And the more I fix my eyes on his appearing, the more that longing to be like him is actually met. And waiting, and we're told in verse 14, for the one who redeemed me, redeemed us actually together, who paid the price on that hill, for he too had a prize in mind, a prize he surmised that was worth his life, a people, a people rescued out of the rubble of a rebellious, incurved world, a people made pure by his blood, for that was the price. Pure, freed from rebellion, freed from false gods, freed to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives while they wait for him. And as they wait, they are spurred on, spurred on by the waiting to do good, to live this good life, this new life, a life shaped and taught by the sound of the gospel of grace, a life where we are eager to do what is good, but not out of duty or guilt, but because of the wonderful sight of grace revealed to us. I'll leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think sums it up perfectly. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on, out of all of that, into something beyond One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full of what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled full with light. But they don't call it goodness. 
They don't call it anything. They're not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you for your grace appeared. And we praise you for our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So uh, work by your spirit through your word to present again and again and again before our eyes his wonderful appearing on that cross. And so work in your word and by your spirit to present before our eyes the wonderful expectation of his coming again. And by presenting that before our eyes, we ask you to change us.